You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. At around 8.30 p.m. on November 2nd, 1988, a 23-year-old Cornell University graduate student named Robert Tappan Morris released what would come to be known as the Morris Worm, the hack heard around the world. Internet-connected computers began to fail across the country. Once it's launched, it kind of goes on and on. The university, the military, defense, they were all suddenly saying, wait a minute, I can't check my email because my computer can't do anything else. There was alarm because we didn't know what was going on. There was some concern that this might be some kind of a military attack on the United States. And it just got to the point where administrators were like, we have to shut down these computers. It was sort of a bunker mentality and that you were sitting here and very much felt like you were under attack. To some degree, we were kind of scared because we didn't know. In the next five minutes, it could suddenly turn nasty and start removing users' files. The internet had just been created the previous year, and so nobody really knew what it was. By the weekend, the worst of it had passed. Berkeley was able to release a patch within 24 hours. But people were scared. The GAO had estimates of anywhere between 100000 to a $1 million in damages. It's possible, maybe even probable, that we'll see another attack reasonably soon. According to the FBI, within 24 hours, 10% of the existing 60,000 internet-facing computers at the time became incapacitated, resulting in the first recorded internet-wide distributed denial-of-service event, or DDoS. The Morris worm marked the first global use of a destructive internet worm, and it was clear that nobody had anticipated that bad guys would use the entire internet for malicious purposes. We've come a long way since that first DDoS attack some 35 years ago. And for the most part, the technology required to mitigate a DDoS attack has been around for a while. (laughs) According to Erica Tchaikovsky, an independent tech journalist writing for AT&T Security in 2020, she says that hackers use three broad DDoS attack strategies and specific tactics for each. They use the volumetric attack strategy to generate massive volumes of network traffic designed to completely saturate the victim's bandwidth. Tactically, they launch UDP and ICMP floods or DNS amplification schemes. (laughs) 
Attackers also used the protocol attack strategy designed to eat up the processing capacity of network infrastructure resources like servers, firewalls, and load balancers at layer 3 and layer 4 of the TCP IP stack. Tactically, they might use a SYN flood attack, spelled S-Y-N, for a synchronization packet within the TCP protocol to circumvent the three-way handshake process required to establish connections between clients and servers. Or they might use the ping of death, where the data packet within the ICMP, UDP, or TCP protocol contains malicious content, causing the victim machine to freeze or die. <sighs> and finally, they use the application attack strategy at layer 7 by initiating transaction requests that consume finite resources like memory. Tactically, they might use an HTTP flood attack where they send legitimate requests to a web server that are designed to consume as many resources as possible. <laughs> For me, though, it's been a minute since I looked at the latest developments in DDoS prevention technology. My assumption going into this episode is that any deployed DDoS tools fall squarely in the bucket of our resilience first principle strategy. The idea here is to survive a DDoS attack, not prevent them beforehand with some kind of zero trust or intrusion kill chain prevention strategy. Let's see if I'm right. So hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. In this Rick the Toolman episode, we're going to explore the world of distributed denial of service protection. My name is Rick Howard, and I'm broadcasting from Into K Cyber's secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios, located underwater somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor, Maryland, in the good old U.S. of A. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Fans of this show know that my best friend is Steve Winterfeld. Steve Winterfeld, advisory CISO at Akamai, been with the company coming up on five years. I've said this many times before, but he's the guy I'm calling for help when I need to leave the country in a hurry, you know, for reasons. He's the former CISO of Nordstrom, a regular contributor here at the CyberWire hash table, and he's one of two editors of my book, Cybersecurity First Principles, A Reboot of Strategy and Tactics. And he is the Al Borland to my Rick the Toolman. Folks, I would just like to be clear that those were Rick's thoughts and not Al's. So send your complaints to Rick at CSOP at thecyberwire.com. As Al said, he's been at Akamai for over five years now. For those that don't know, Akamai is a cloud computing company that specializes in security services and content delivery. They've been offering DDoS protection services for many years. They bought Prolexic back in 2013, one of the original DDoS protection companies that featured prominently in the Cybersecurity Canon candidate book, Fatal System Error, written by Joe Min, about some early cybercrime stories back in the 2000s. So when I decided to get up to speed on the latest DDoS prevention tools, I naturally reached out to Steve. He sent over a collection of Akamai white papers on the topic, and the links are in the show notes. So I asked him to come on the show to unpack some of those ideas, I was wondering how DDoS prevention companies like Akamai, Imperva, Radware, Cloudflare, and many others 
can determine if a customer is under a DDoS attack or they are just getting a higher than usual amount of network traffic. Here's Steve. We say DDoS, but it really is a misnomer because when you see it, you'll see things like requests per second. Well, then you know those are going against web pages or APIs. You'll also see bits per second. That means you're just trying to overwhelm the pipeline, volumetric attacks against everything. You might see packets per second. Then you're trying to use the resources on the computers themselves. You're trying to make the CPUs crunch so many numbers that they just fall over. And finally, you'll see queries per second. And when you see queries per second, then it's against the DNS infrastructure. And we have to remember DNS, for somebody as old as you, kind of like the phone book. Uh. I'm glad you mentioned the phone book, Steve, because now I have to explain phone book to all my listeners because they have no idea what that is. (laughs) Oh, my God. Here we go. More history. For all of you youngsters in the audience, back in the day, before we had the internet and before we all had cell phones, every home, business, and school had these things called telephones, hooked to a giant network of physical wires that the phone company ran to all of the buildings. If you needed to call Kevin down the street, you could look up his number in a very thick book called The Phone Book that listed everybody's name and telephone number in it. According to Jeff Nielsen of the Saturday Evening Post, The phone company in New Haven, Connecticut, issued the very first phone directory on February 21st, 1878. It listed the numbers of 11 homes, 38 businesses, and the police department. And it was the first incarnation of what would be the domain name system, DNS, in the internet age around 1985. My name's Jim Gilbert. I've worked at Akamai for nearly eight and a half years now, and my focus has been on DNS, both recursive and authoritative. Jim Gilbert is the Akamai product manager for external authoritative and recursive DNS services. Steve brought him along to keep us both honest. Not even close, Rick. I asked Jim to provide a simple example of how cyber criminals use DDoS. Ransomware is a good, simple example, even on DNS DDoS. So there'll be threats of a DNS DDoS attack, there'll be a sample attack, and then there'll be a request for payment. And after a certain amount of time, and then after that amount of time, there'll actually be a larger DNS DDoS attack. Back in the day, it may have been, I would pay $10 to knock somebody off a game. You know, it was very low level. And then over time, it became uh, extortion. You'll, you know, it's one of the three major extortions. You have ransomware, holding data hostage, and DDoS. And it's kind of that bracket of pay me and this won't happen to you. A couple of years ago, the U.S. had the most DDoS attacks. Now it's Europe. And that's shifted with uh, actors that are more politically motivated. And I don't call them hackivists because they're more like privateers. Um, historically, if back in the sailing ship days, if if a nation needed more ships, they would commission pirate ships to be privateers. And and so this kind of this hybrid of partly a criminal, partly a nation state actor. Um, and somebody like Killnet would be that. 
Okay, uh, I see that as killing it as an example, but it doesn't alleviate, it doesn't eliminate hacktivism as a, they might use that same tool too, right? Correct, doing, correct, but they're not tipping the numbers from the U.S. to Europe. Right. It's also used as a decoy, right? To launch a DDoS attack over here on this part of the network, and then the the super cyber bad guys can go in on another part and, you know, steal data or do something like that. How often is that happening? It's relatively Frequent, we'll see an attack on the DNS system followed by an attack on other parts of the infrastructure. And you can see the volumes correlate in time. And the other thing we put out in a a different report that I sent you is that also gives a benefit of overwhelming logs. Harder to do investigation when your logs are overwhelmed, overwritten. That paper we did jointly with uh, Financial Services ISAC, uh, we both wanted to highlight that that is a, a valid and, and practice technique the threat's using. Besides overwhelming the logs, if you're noticing that you're being overwhelmed by a DDoS attack, I could see where that would focus the InfoSec team, that we got to stop that. And what, what you're really telling me here is that there's a good chance that there might be something else going on, so don't let your guard down. Yeah, that's absolutely right. No, no doubt, the even in the most recent weeks, uh, a large healthcare provider that you know and a large oil and gas company that you know uh, both had these simultaneous attacks, and the InfoSec teams were trying to manage both both of the events and trying to co- cross correlate it, and definitely kept them busier and distracted for sure. In a recent report we put out on ransomware, we also noted that. Um, you know, if you had a ransomware attack, that there's a good chance you're going to have a second ransomware attack within the next few months. So as you're putting out one fire, somebody else is lighting another fire. So you have to be able to to do both things simultaneously. Yeah, so don't, uh, when you finish the first one, don't think, oh, that'll probably <laughs> never happen again. <laughs> yeah, good to go. <laughs> Well, Steve, you mentioned the ways we can measure these DDoS attacks. You said RPSs, requests per second. We got bits per second, packets per second, queries per second. How are you guys deciding that, oh, my God, this is not normal, and then we need to do something? What is the? How do you guys do that? Not specifically Akamai, but in general, how does a service like this work? Uh, We've shown that um, there are known attack patterns. There are, you know sin floods or something like that, that is a known recognized attack pattern. Um, What we've seen in the last few years is a few things. One, the increase of Internet of Things has given more uh, bots to create larger armies, to create larger attacks. Um, We've seen, so the speed of attack has increased. You know, many years ago, um, it would take hours to build up a long attack. Now, it's minutes to go from a low-level attack to a new record. And then the types of attack, it was UDP flood, SIN flood, um, things of that nature, UDP fragment. Uh, and there were probably you know a handful of, of those that were the most. Now those handful are less than 50%. You know, it used to be 90%. And so it, it's a large variety. And we constantly see innovation. Uh, we put out a uh, article on phone home and, and middle box reflection, two new techniques that are, are giving them that ability to conduct large-scale attacks. Well, it might help, Jim, if you describe how, how a customer of Akamai 
fits into this, right? How do, what puts you in a position to be able to see that kind of traffic and make some decisions about mitigating the attacks? Yeah, that's what, a great question. How does that work? Yeah. yeah, so DNS is a really interesting use case because, and some more background about DNS. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.